Let's read Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. The words will be on the screen. And it starts off and it says this. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then he said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone? If he gains the whole world, yet loses his life. Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each one according to what he has done. Truly, I tell you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up to a high mountain. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I'll set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, Suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up and touched them and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him your, I, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus, he's going to do in an instant what people try to do by their own power. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. You will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. 
Let's pray. Father, at the beginning of this year, I pray that you would give us grace to listen to you, Father. We all have our lists of things we hope to do this year. We all uh, have lists of things that we hope that you will do this year for us, Father. But I pray that today we would set our lists aside. We would sit, we would hear your word and listen, Father. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? Uh, There's no better way to get to know somebody than by taking a road trip with them. Right? You take a road trip with somebody, you get into a car because uh, you have the same destination. You're with them and you want to end up with them, so you share a destination. On a road trip, you also share dialogue, right? There's nothing worse than driving in a road trip with somebody that sleeps. There's nothing worse than riding with somebody in a road trip and they don't talk. You ask them questions and they hit you with yes, no, please be quiet, I'm trying to drive. On a road trip, there a destination, you share dialogue, but one thing that is important is that only one person drives at a time. There's nothing worse than driving in a road trip with a backseat driver, right? Um, if we're on a road trip and you do not know how to drive, don't tell me where to go or how to get there. If we're on a road trip and you tend to get lost, don't tell me where to go or how to get there. If we're on a road trip and you've never been there before, don't tell me where to go or how to get there. The destination is shared. Dialogue is shared. But it's important that when it comes to driving, that you let the most competent person do the driving. I only bring that up because at the start of a new year, um, uh, it's important for all of us to know that uh, we're on a road trip. And all of us are headed to the same place. Everybody is on a road trip to what we call glory. Glory is this. It is the place where you get the highest praise from the person that you hold in the highest regard. That's what you chase after. There is some body or some bodies who their words carry more weight than anybody else. And it's important that you have their praise. It may be a dad that walked out on you and your whole life is spent trying to prove that he was wrong. It may be a spouse, a friend, a loved one. It it may be that you just feel like you're not going to be full until everybody acknowledges your greatness, but everybody is chasing after a praise or admonition or admiration from something or someone. And I want you to hear this. On this path to glory that we're all on, um, 
everybody's in the passenger seat. Here's what I mean by this. Everybody's driven by something. There is something that is driving you towards getting that goal that you want. Some of us here are driven by our jobs, career success, and advancement. That we think that the quickest way to get to glory is to excel at our jobs. So what we did at the end of last year and the start of new one is we created all of these resolutions and we've made lists. But one of the things that stands on top of our list more than and, and, and anything else is how we're going to improve our job and career and our lives are revolving around that. There's some of us here that are consumed with the praise of people. There's some of us here that are eager for relationship and intimacy and connection. And everybody's driven by something. The problem is, and I want you to hear, our biggest problem is that we tend to think we're wise enough to determine who should be doing the driving. So here's what takes place. All of us in here have lived, right, more than one year. We've lived life. So you've been in this transition from year to year. And one of the things that takes place at the start of the year is we think that the passage of time has just made us more wise. And now we know what we should really do. Not realizing that there was a point in time last year. Right? There's lots of bad things that take place in our lives that are done to us. But there was a point in time last year where you had complete control to determine what you would do. You chose the path that you thought would bring you the most joy. And you came to the conclusion that you made the wrong choice. And you were eager for a new year to start thinking that January 1st would change whatever that is inside of us. The only thing that I'm here to do today is to convince you or help to convince you, and I'm just going to tip my hat at the top of this, that on the path to glory, uh, uh, there is somebody that should be behind the driver's seat, and that somebody is Jesus. What I want to convince you today is that as you get in the car and allow him to drive, if you have made the commitment to him, or by the end of this time you're ready to make a commitment to him, one of the things that I want to help you see is that as you start to make that drive with him, there's going to be a point in time where you are convinced that you made the wrong choice. And I just want you to stay in the car. I do not want you to confuse comfort with security. Being with Jesus is absolutely secure. He will ensure that if you road trip with him and are driven by him, you will make it to glory. You are secure. However, one thing that I want to share with everybody in here and nobody is exempt, the ride will not be comfortable. That's what these next four weeks at least are, as we find ourselves in the gospel of Matthew. It is this road trip with Jesus where he's trying to convince the disciples to stay in the car. Chapters one through four of this book is Jesus's pedigree. He's showing you why he is 
uh, why he should be the one behind the wheel. So the book starts off with him being miraculously born and protected by God. And then he does what Adam couldn't do. Adam, for those of us that have started to read through the Bible in a year and haven't stopped yet, what you'll see is that Adam was somebody who was in a garden with plenty of food. God gave him one restriction. And when Adam was tempted, Adam failed. At the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is in the desert with no food and he's tempted and he passes that test. So Matthew's trying to show us, look, look, Jesus has the pedigree to be an all sufficient savior. He's worthy of driving the car. Then Matthew chapter four, verse 17 to chapter 16, verse 20. All that we've done in the book so far is Jesus is basically driving in circles, picking up people. So it starts off Matthew chapter four, verse 17 uh, starts off and it says this from that point on. Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, and he tells them, come follow him. Then throughout the gospel of Matthew, what he does is he shows his authority through word and deed, chapters 5 through 9. He shares his authority in chapter 10, chapter 11 through 13. His authority is doubted. It's distrusted. It looks disappointed. But chapters 14 through 16, Jesus is showing that doubt, distrust, disappointment, disease, even death, demons, nothing can stop him. And at the end of 16, the disciples who were picked up by him and ride along with him come to the conclusion, Jesus, you're God in the flesh. And they're soaring on these heights. If we're going to get to glory, you're going to be the one that does the driving. And then in 1621, Jesus hits him with this. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. What he says for anybody that wants to follow him to glory is this. The path to glory runs through the grave, not around it. The path to glory runs through the grave, not around it. Anybody that follows Jesus, who is this healer and deliverer, thinking that following him means I'll be exempt from hard times, is going to really quick say, I want to get off of this ride. After these heights, after they finally get that he's God, the very first thing that he reveals about himself is if you walk with me, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And so there's just a few things that I want to share with you today. And the very first one is this. Suffering is part of the journey. Suffering is part of the journey. It's a package deal, y'all. It's like saying, um, I want kids, but I want all of my sleep. 
I want kids, but I want to be obeyed. I want relationships, but I don't want conflict. There, there are two things that are a package deal. They come together. We live lives, y'all, where we want all dessert and no dinner. And Jesus is saying, that's just not how this thing works. 1621, here's the first thing, right? I know this is a hard truth, but listen, y'all, it's so good. 1621, what I love is that suffering is part of the journey. But what you see is that Jesus predicts it. He knows that it's coming. It doesn't catch him off guard. And do you know what that helps you and I see? Suffering. Although it's part of this journey, suffering, every bit of it that you go through in your life, is never by accident. It's always by appointment. It's never just by chance. Jesus is saying, there's an appointment that I have with death. And I know we usually talk about the goodness of the gospel at the end, but with it being the start of the year, let's change things up. Do you know why Jesus had an appointment with death? Because he took our reservation, y'all. Because of the ways that we've disobeyed God, because of the ways that we have prioritized other things above God, because of the ways that we've been determined to drive our own car, instead of allowing you and I to drive off of a cliff away from God into eternal torment and anguish, Jesus says, I'll step, I'll step up and take that reservation. Jesus is proving throughout this gospel that he's absolutely perfect. With the God that we serve, if God is really perfect, then do you know what his standard is? It's absolute perfection. So if you and I are going to meet that standard, do you know the only thing that's good enough? Being absolutely perfect. Raise your hand if that's you. Precisely. Jesus steps in as one who is absolutely perfect. He should have never had to face death. But he comes here and do you know what he says? It's necessary for me to face death. Jesus has an appointment with death. Because he saw you and I, those that he loved, who could never meet God's standard. And in his goodness and kindness, he chose to face death for us. And for all of us to turn and put our trust in him, that same truth that, uh, that applies to him, suffering not being by accident, but by appointment, that same truth applies to you and I. One of the other things that we see here that should guide us is this. Look, Jesus is going to talk about his death a whole lot. But Jesus is never going to talk about his death without talking about resurrection. He's leading them to glory, but it goes through the grave. Look here at this next verse. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never 
happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. This is the same Peter who discovered that Jesus was God in the flesh. And now when Jesus starts to talk about hard times, Peter says, oh, no, Lord, this isn't going to take place with you. You're the one that brings healing and wholeness. Why would you die? Listen, y'all. It seems like Peter is being selfless, but that's not the case at all. Peter's actually being selfish. Do you know why? Because Peter says, look, the only reason I'm on this train is because you were headed somewhere. And now you tell me that you're going to go to the grave. I'm still on this train. If you go to the grave then that means that I'm going to go to the grave. And Peter, here, this values comfort. And his value of comfort has brought him to a place where he feels like God's will is something bad. And Jesus says this, get behind me, Satan. Those seems like harsh words. But do you know what Jesus is actually saying? Do you remember at the start of this how I told you Jesus passes the test in the garden that Adam failed? Do you know what the temptation was that Satan gave to the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, if you bow down and worship me, I'll make you the king of all of the earth. Satan promised Jesus a kingdom without a cross. He promised him a shortcut, a way to circumvent, to go around the grave to God's plans. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you're doing the same thing. You're trying to lead this train. You're trying to drive and avoid conflict and avoid trouble. And Jesus essentially says to Peter, get get behind me, get back in your place, get in the back seat. I'm driving this thing. We tend to think of sin in terms of right or wrong. But I think often when the Bible talks about sin, um, it talks about it in the realm of idolatry, which has to do often with more with priorities than morality. Jesus is saying, no, no, look. Being concerned about safety is a good thing. So long as that doesn't lead the ship. Do you know why? Because prioritizing, hear this, your earthly comfort and safety is the quickest way to spiritual suicide. That's what Jesus talks about next. Look here in verse 24. He says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, hear this. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will Find it. Here's what he's saying. 
the way for us to find the life that God has for us is to first go through the grave. A word picture may help. Um, It may be better for you to think of your life like a bag of seeds. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, hey, in 20 years, there's going to be no more food left on the earth. All the existing plants and animals will die. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you these bag of seeds. These seeds are priceless. You have the option to do two things. You can start a seed collection. Put them behind a glass wall, put them on display, preserve them, make sure that they stay just like they were, keep them comfortable and safe. The only problem is if you do that, then you're going to starve. Do you know the only choice that you have for life, if what he said was true? Have an immediate funeral for those seeds. You've got to take those seeds and be willing to bury them in the ground because it's only by burying those seeds in the ground. It's only as they die that they fulfill their true purpose of birthing new life. This is what Jesus is saying about our lives. You do not fulfill your purpose for living by valuing your present comfort above everything else. You are here in this world right now. And although we take breaths indiscriminately, you have a limited number of them. So regardless of how things play out, regardless of what you do with your life, it's already trending to end. Jesus is saying that if anybody wants to come after him, he's got to view his life as an investment. He has, he or she has to right now say, all right, Lord, all of my ambitions, my desire, my ego, my desire for safety, my comforts. I'm willing to give them all up. I know it's going to be hard, but anybody that makes a commitment to Jesus and then looks for the path of least resistance to follow him has not made a commitment to Jesus, but they've made a commitment to comfort. I had a friend who years ago felt like um, uh, his plan or his path in life was to be a professor, um, that that's what God called him to. And he made his plans and he worked his whole life towards that end. Uh, and then there was this little old church in Washington, D.C. Uh, that somebody wrote to him about just an old dying church that really needed help. And what he did was. You know, he had plans for his life, but he remembered this portion of text that anybody that wants to follow Christ must be willing to set their ambitions aside as he calls. So he goes there, scouts things out, just plans to listen to what God would have. He he leaves with the sense that God has called him there, he sends his wife there. His wife goes, and she comes back, and she leaves with that same sense. 
And although it was something that he didn't want to do, one of the things that they did was as they came to D.C. as a symbol of the fact that they wanted to give their lives completely to God, regardless of how much it cost them, they both went uh, to a graveyard and they bought their tombstones and two plots of lands right there in D.C. And they said, this is just a symbol for us that regardless of where God leads us, we're going to go. This is just us saying that we're going to plant our lives on the promise of God, and, we're, and we know that suffering is a part of the journey. I only bring that up because I think we live in a world that values comfort above all else. And while I do not know what your specific cross is, I think what Jesus just wants to make abundantly clear is that there will be one. There has to be one. There must be one. It may be you staying in a marriage that you feel is unfulfilling and it's hard and it's tough and life would be so much better and you would be so much happier if you could just leave and not be with them or leave and be with somebody else. And although your comfort would be met, it would come at the expense of you following God's instructions about marriage and the beauty of what it's supposed to display. Your cross may be you having an orientation where you love someone deeply. And I mean, you really, really love them. And what you say is, as somebody who follows Jesus, what I'm saying is that I don't dictate how I live out my sexuality. But the person who died for me, who gave me new life, he dictates that. And it's hard. Listen, nobody's saying that it's easy. And it may feel like every day of your life you are dying a thousand deaths. And this side of the grave, you may never experience the fulfillment that you hoped for. But do you know what? In some way, shape, or form, That is the pathway that God leads everybody through. And the reason why Jesus starts here and talks about his death is this. Listen, God is not some Vegas magician that wants to show off his power to impress a bunch of people who bought tickets and get to witness from the crowd. God is a deliverer 
who wants to show off his power to people who are trapped and need to be delivered, people who need to experience life. We want to witness the power of God, but we don't ever want to go through nothing. And I want you to hear this. You will not see the power of God staying on the sidelines. That is not how it works. The only people that experience the power of God are people who hear this. And in faith say, Jesus, you've you've left me with a cross to bear. And while that cross may not be the same as anybody else's, I'm not going to spend my time comparing my cross to somebody else's. I'm going to use the energy that you gave me. Working with all my might and looking to you, asking you to help me bear this cross. That I will not be surprised when suffering comes my way. I will not think that I am exempt from it. Any Any gospel, any use of the scriptures that somehow leads you to believe that following Jesus is going to make your natural life easier, better, and free from suffering is not just some other way to interpret the scripture. It's a way to distract you from the truth that's right inside. I just want you to hear this. Look, suffering is a part of the journey. The path to glory runs through the grave, not around it. Now, you may say, John, that was 25 minutes of the most discouraging stuff I have ever heard in my life. Way to start off the new year. I hope my next point will be a little bit more encouraging. I know it seems like bad news, but it's not. The disciples' problem isn't in what Jesus said, it's what they heard. When you hear about suffering, it, excuse me, it shocks you. And that's all that you can hear. But remember, Jesus never talks about his death without talking about resurrection. Suffering is part of the journey, but I want you to hear this. Suffering is part of the journey. It's just part of it. And it's the smaller part. It's it's the difference in between a detour and a destination. A, A detour is not someplace that you go to. It's some place that you go through on to the goal. Jesus never leads anybody to death. Jesus leads us through death to glory. Look here at uh, verse 28. It says this. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. 
Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, I want you to stop right here. Jesus has just talked about suffering. And one of the things that can take place is this. As people, even the mention of hard times is enough to make our vivid imaginations run wild. Fear, a rational fear, grips us and it consumes us. So much so that just a mention that the hard times aren't going to be it, aren't enough to take our minds off of the hard times. What we need is a vision. We need a picture that something better can take place. And so what Jesus does is right after he tells them this of his death, he takes them from this valley up to a mountain. And it's on this mountain that his glory is projected. And not just his glory, but Look at who it says is right there with him. Moses and Elijah. That may not mean much to us, but it meant a whole lot to them. When the Bible refers to the Old Testament, it refers to it with this term, the law and the prophets. And what you have here are these two men that are the embodiment of the law and the prophets. We tend to think of the Old Testament as this dusty old book with lots of rules uh, that, that, that don't mean much to us. But the people who lived in this day saw the Old Testament as their very life. It was God speaking, saying he wanted relationship with us and guiding us as to how we get there. And what we get is here, Moses, the embodiment of the law, not just a man that wrote rules, but he was the very man that found people suffering on the brink of death in slavery, saying, God loves you. He wants to deliver you. I'm going to lead you out. And Moses ends off his life in Deuteronomy writing, saying, hey, wait, one day there's going to be somebody greater than me that comes. So everybody that knows this is waiting in anticipation. Then Elijah comes as a prophet. And what he's saying is like all the rest of the prophets. Listen, all of y'all that are God's people, y'all prioritize things more than God himself. Repent and turn or else God's going to send you into exile. They don't repent and turn. But the prophets say at the end, But listen, even though y'all haven't repented and turned, the same God that exiled you is going to be the one that brings you back. And so people are waiting, waiting, waiting. And right here, Moses and Elijah come. And they are talking with Jesus, pointing to the fact that this is the person that they have been waiting for. Jesus gives this vision of the glory that's to come. And Peter, hear this, driven once again by earthly comfort, says this, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I'll set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 5, while he was still speaking. So Peter starts to talk, and do you know what God does? He interrupts him. 
to say, what, Peter, quit talking. But do you know what God does? God says this to this Jesus who is enthroned in glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Do you know what you have here? Somebody who has arrived at the destination. You remember glory is you getting the highest praise from the person you hold in the highest regard. Here the disciples see it. And it is this glorious vision and the one word that God has to them, I think is the one word that God speaks to us today and at the top of this new year, y'all. Listen. Listen. That we would hear that you and I would be people, hear this, of prayer. And I want to rearrange sometimes how we think of prayer. Oftentimes when we talk about prayer or when we think of it, do you know what we do? We make lists. These are all the things that I need, and I'm going to go to God with all the things that I need, and I'm just going to rattle off my list. That's one way to do things. Or do you know what you and I can do? Say, I want to spend more time this year, God. Not asking you for what I want, but letting you tell me what I need. I want to listen. I want to put myself in the passenger seat and be guided by you. The disciples get a vision of his glory. And in the same way that Jesus doesn't talk about his death without talking resurrection. We see there in verse 11 to 13. He's not going to talk about his resurrection without talking about his death. Suffering and hard times are a part of the journey. What Peter did is what you and I can tend to do, and it's what makes following Jesus so hard, is we can confuse the inevitability of God turning things around in our favor with immediacy. We can think that God promising to make things right means that he's going to do it right now. And what you and I have to come to grips with is this. All of God's promises, they are good and they are true and they are sure. But every last one of them are like these post-dated checks. You know what a check is, right? I know there's a bunch of us that are born in 90 uh, and below. Back in the day, we used to like 
write on a piece of paper, I owe you. You couldn't like cash app or PayPal, but it was this promise that I'm going to deliver on this. But what we used to do back in the day when we didn't have money in the bank was we said, hey, I'm good for this, but just don't cash it until next Friday. (laughs) But make sure you cash it on Friday, because if Monday comes and it's still in my bank, I can't promise that it's going to be there. Following Jesus is so hard because following him requires faith. It requires us saying, although I don't experience the glory right now, I am going to commit to walk with you through all of the hard times because I know that it's certain. And if you and I are honest, that's what makes any pledge to commit to him so hard is because on a mountaintop like this, we would love to say that that's the case. How many times have we been in church or in a building or in the midst of worship or we get this sense of God's glory and through tears and snot, we pledge, I'll follow you wherever. And then we go back to that marriage and it feels like a thousand deaths. And then we say no to the relationship. And it feels like a thousand deaths. We turn down the promotion. We sell the house. And it feels like a thousand deaths. What changes us? The key comes in verse 9. Look at this. They see this glory. And it says this, verse 9, look, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. What's he saying? Why is he making them wait? Because if they come down from this mountain and tell everybody about what they saw, everybody's going to be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah like they have been, and they're going to want to follow him to glory, and they're going to be disappointed and turn from him. Do you know what they need? They need another vision of his glory. Do you know the vision of his glory that they need? Not with him on this mountain, with his clothes glistening, but him on another mountain, Calvary, with his clothes gambled away. They don't need this vision of this God standing in between the two most untouchable heroes of their past. No, they need a vision of this God who has condescended and has been willing to die on the cross in between two criminals who we don't even know their names. They don't need to just hear God boom from the heavens. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know what, who they need to hear it from? They need to hear it from the very pagans who put him on the cross 
seeing the way that he died, and after seeing his death, you have this man at the foot of the cross saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And after he's in that grave for three days, do you know what they need to see? They need to see him rise from the dead. Jesus cashing the post-dated check that he wrote and showing all of them, not just telling them to prepare for heartache and there's glory on the other side. He doesn't just lecture or explain. Jesus himself comes on our behalf to experience the grave. So that whenever you and I are tempted to run from his will because we feel like it's dying a thousand deaths, we can be reminded that death for the people of God has never been the curtain call. It's been the opening act. Death is not something that we go to because Christ conquered death. It's something that we go through. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins to pay for our debt and we put our trust in him, but we also have to be reminded that Jesus comes off of this mountaintop and the very first thing that he does is conquer a demon, showing us that this Jesus is all-powerful, capable of conquering anything. And if that's the vision that governs us. Do you know what it does for you and I throughout this year? It makes us people who spend our time not trying to lead the way. Not trying to take, or not trying to determine who's in the driver's seat, it's, it's, it, it, it's you and I, we take our time and we say, Lord, I'm going to let you lead this thing. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to spend my time pleading. I'm going to pray that you continue to lead me, that you continue to guide me, that when death and fear and the grave and suffering seems so real, when it feels so real, I pray that you would crowd that out with the vision of your greatness. It makes you and I not those people who rest on God's work in the past, but to say, hey, if God has placed us here and now in the context that he's placed us in, the neighborhood that he's put us in, the marriages, the friendships, the jobs, the schools, the places that we find ourselves where pain and suffering seem like they run rampant. We don't look for the exit. We don't look for escape from the fiery furnace. We pray for the presence of God in the furnace that God would sustain us and display his power in and through us as a church, as his people. I'm I'm done, but that's why we try to start the year off like Richard said. 
Listen, for the past five years, from the time we've started to talk about this church and when you think of church, right, don't think of, you know, the painted walls, the building. When we talk church, we think of the community of people here. The very first thing that we did when we gathered is we said, let's sit down and let's seek the Lord and let's pray and let's listen. And every month we gather and say, let's sit and pray and let's listen. Let's let God crowd out our fear with a vision of glory. And at the start of each year, invariably, it's the same thing. We start off and it's strong. There's lots of folks here. We break our fast. We eat pizza and we talk and pray and we hear from God. And then as the year goes on. And more and more trouble is piled on our plate. And it becomes harder and harder to believe the promises of God. What we need more than anything else. Is not to try to muster up courage in our own strength. What we need more than anything else are the people of God gathering To rally, it doesn't even have to be in here, but somewhere, praying that God would give us a vision of glory that dwarfs the experience of pain that we see. The path to glory runs through the grave, not around it. Jesus is the line leader. He's already cashed that check. He's good for it. There's a cross that you have to bear. I don't know what it is, but it's there. Suffering is a part of the journey. But suffering is only a part of the journey. Let's pray that God would give us the grace to live in that part in such a way that it brings him glory. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, for your kindness towards us. We're thankful for the example that we see in the Lord Jesus Uh, I pray, Father, that we wouldn't sit on the sidelines and see Jesus's resurrection power as an example, uh, but that we would live the kind of lives, Lord, that wholly depend on your ability to raise us from the grave. Would we readily embrace the ridicule, shame, loss um, that comes from walking with you, being reminded that that's not death any more than a seed planted in the ground is death. It's our first step towards life. Help us to commit fully, finally, and completely to you as you've already done to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.